You're listening to the New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. Welcome to the New World Order. I'm your host, Vipratap Vikram Singh. Today, we will be continuing our episode on West Asia and taking a closer look at the Shia-Sunni conflict, as well as the impact that the Turkish referendum will have on West Asia. Joining me again is Ambassador Neelam Deo, Director at Gateway House. Ambassador Deo, we ended our last episode uh, looking into the hostility between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I want to continue that in the first part of this uh, podcast. Is the hostility from the sectarian Shia-Sunni rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, is it largely overplayed by the West? Um, I would say that it's oversimplified. Uh, both by Western uh, politicians and, you know, analysts and then uh, disseminated by the Western media. Uh, And it gets disseminated globally, including in the Middle East itself. So there's a kind of feedback loop, uh, which then you find that uh, even uh, Middle Eastern uh, politicians like the Saudis, the Iranians, etc., do begin to talk about uh, these kind of divergences. The divergences are real, uh, but what you have is a certain level of posturing. So, you know, for example, the Iranian and Saudi foreign ministers both write op-eds in the New York Times or in, you know, powerful and major Western uh, media channels. Uh, They give interviews, they accuse each other of uh, sectarianism, uh, and that feeds uh, the whole process. There's also an element of... um, you know, patronizing uh, the Arab world, uh, the Muslim world, by talking about, you know, age-old differences, etc. Everything in the world is age-old. I mean, there were age-old hostilities between Germany and France or between, uh, you know, the UK and France. Uh, They had 100-year wars and things. So there is that uh, aspect, but uh, I think we should not... uh, try to downplay the religious factor uh, either. And it it has a very strong entrenched uh, uh, position because the uh, Iranian revolution in 1979 was an, against a very pro-Western Shah of Iran. After the revolution, Iran became a theocratic uh, republic. But the, all the Gulf monarchies which emerged out of uh, the Ottoman uh, Empire, they were kingdoms. So there is that uh, element of concern in the GCC about a spreading uh, democratic or republican uh, culture. And all of these Shia, uh, Sunni sort of descriptions are aggravated by the fact that in all the countries of the Middle East, like elsewhere, uh, there are substantial minorities. So even if Saudi Arabia is uh, largely a Sunni country and dominated by a Sunni uh, ideology as in the form of Wahhabism, it has a almost 20% uh, Shia population. Uh, and that population is li- located strategically in areas where there is a lot of uh, oil resources. Hmm. In the opposite way, Bahrain uh, has a Sunni uh, leadership, but a majority uh, Shia country. 
Iraq uh, under Saddam Hussein was ruled by a Sunni majority, but actually a minority, but because it was a Shia majority country. So these are the realities, uh, but the uh, struggles against each other uh, are uh, for strategic uh, reasons rather than overwhelmingly religious differences. So, Ambassador, from what I'm understanding, it seems like this is really more of a quest for regional political and economic dominance uh, that, that's driving the hostility rather than, you know, a really deep-seated uh, religious conflict. Would that be correct? I would largely agree without, uh, uh, you know, uh, eliminating religion as a factor completely. Uh, but, you know, they are all... Uh, in one sense, rivals for export uh, of oil. And earlier it used to be to the West, but now it is to countries like China or India, which are major buyers, and so also have influence uh, in this uh, area. Uh, they are. Uh, they were also, you know, the Gulf uh, monarchies are largely Western-oriented. Uh, they obtain political patronage from the West uh, in the in the Security Council, for one thing. Uh, but they are also uh, able to access arms, Western arms supplies, which Iran under sanctions was uh, unable to do. Uh, and so they, are, they, they do have uh, uh, economic and uh, political uh, rivalries. And you can see these uh, rivalries uh, played out in the fact that under the Shah, Iran was an ally of Israel. Since then, the Gulf uh, uh, monarchies have moved much closer to Israel, while Iran uh, has a much more anti-US uh, and anti-Israeli uh, posture. On the other hand, Iran supports uh, the Palestinian cause more strongly than the Gulf uh, uh, monarchies uh, do, uh, especially now that they have become so close uh, to Israel. You also have uh, the search for uh, respect globally. So the king of Saudi Arabia assumes the title of the protector of the holy places of Makkah and Medina, which are in uh, Saudi Arabia. And in Makkah, there have actually been uh, armed hostilities between Iranian pilgrims and the Saudi uh, security forces. But you can see that both of these countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, which leads the other countries, are seeking a strategic and political uh, space in the struggle in Syria, where they are on opposite sides. Um, and similarly, uh, that is the case, but at a much lower uh, uh, level, in the, at least in the public and media space in uh, Yemen. Um, the, the search is for Iran, which is a population of 80 million, uh, which is more than all the Gulf monarchies put together, uh, seeking uh, to spread its uh, influence, and certainly to a certain extent, by its through its revolutionary guards, to also spread uh, the, uh, the Shiism that it uh, practices. Ambassador, now you've mentioned the conflict in Yemen, and now while you rightly said that it is uh, it is a conflict that does not get enough international attention, it has it has brought about the development of the Islamic military alliance to fight terrorism, uh, 
created by Saudi Arabia and involving uh, many countries that are uh, aligned with it. Um, how does that impact the bilateral relation between Saudi Arabia and Iran? There's no question that it will further damage the Iran-Saudi equation because uh, IMAFT is a Sunni grouping. Uh, now, it claims to be anti-terrorist and uh, its focus is, uh, as you say, uh, likely to be uh, on Yemen. But as yet, it's not a reality. It does not have any forces. It does not have a structure as yet. Its mission is not very well defined. Will it fight ISIS? Will it fight Al-Qaeda? Will it fight Iran in uh, uh, Iranian-supported Houthis in uh, Yemen? Will it challenge Iran in Syria, uh, for example? What IMAFT is going to do is create a lot of dilemmas, actually, for Pakistan, now that its former army chief, uh, General uh, Rahir Sharif, has uh, accepted the Saudi invitation to command this force, and the Pakistan government has uh, agreed that he should uh, do so. You know, Pakistan has a long border with Iran, not with Saudi Arabia. But on the other hand, this government, led by Nawaz Sharif, and previous governments have been very close to Saudi Arabia, but particularly Nawaz Sharif, who not only uh, saved him when he might have been executed uh, by the Musharraf regime, which ousted him, uh, but then spent many years in exile in Saudi Arabia and has built up some uh, business interests there. So Pakistan needs to have good relations with Iran, which is a neighboring country, and an Islamic country like itself. But it also has all, Saudi Arabia, there are all these equities. Uh, there's been talk about an oil and gas pipeline from Iran to Pakistan and through to India. Uh, there are, you know, these are the kind of dilemmas that uh, actually Pakistan will face since its own former army chief is going to be commanding IMAFT. Uh, but once it becomes operational, then other questions will come up. Is Pakistan going to contribute troops to this uh, force? After all, they had, the parliament in Pakistan had declined to send forces to Yemen at an earlier request by uh, Saudi Arabia backed by UAE, etc. So it complicates the situation more, but its effectiveness will depend on how uh, its troop strength it actually develops and how clearly it then sets out its mandate. Ambassador Deo, it wouldn't be fair for us to have a podcast on West Asia and not discuss the geoeconomic power that oil has on the world. Now, given that oil prices uh, across the world have been low, does this help ease bilateral tension, especially in Gulf uh, countries that primarily export oil like Iran and Saudi Arabia? And similarly, how does the, how does the, the price of oil affect the geopolitics of the greater region, of the greater West Asian region? You know, lower oil prices means uh, a lower uh, GDP. And certainly the finances of all the Gulf countries are uh, stressed uh, at the moment. They've all actually begun a process of austerity, of reducing subsidies, of uh, charging actually 
pricing uh, water, electricity, raising the price of uh, fuel, re reducing uh, governmental salaries, etc. To the extent that Saudi Arabia is even considering selling some 5% of its uh, of Aramco, which is probably the largest unlisted uh, company in the world. But when budgets are stressed, those also generate uh, social uh, uh, problems. And that, in a way, hardens the attitude of uh, governments that are in power. So low oil prices can move and aggravate tensions. On the other hand, you know, Saudi Arabia agreed to let Iran increase its uh, output in OPEC uh, meetings. And Iraq is also ramping up its output because the output in these two countries had uh, fallen so low because of uh, uh, armed uh, uh, action taking place, the invasion of Iraq, the sanctions uh, against Iran, etc. So they do try to work together in some areas, but it certainly uh, increases uh, hostilities. Uh, the other thing is that this need to diversify their economies will have an impact also on South Asia uh, because they are trying to find jobs for their own people. Uh, the kind of many of these jobs which were done by uh, expat labor from South Asia and for India, it's, it's very significant. We have some 7 million expat workers in uh, the Gulf, um, some of whom have already started uh, to return. But there is uh, one element which uh, the consequences of which at this moment uh, are a little bit uh, unknown, and that is that diversifying the economy, making it more efficient, modernizing uh, the, uh, the society, requires that the educational system be uh, up, you know, will, uh, will have to be modernized uh, as well. And in uh, deeply religious uh, societies where the state has set the, uh, the curricula for education, this is a difficult problem. If they introduce a less hostile attitude uh, towards including the West, but also against uh, uh, Iran, uh, they, uh, they make the built-in hostility into the teaching against Shias a lesser, uh, uh, less profile uh, matter, then that could improve relations. On the other hand, by uh, combined with social media, this kind of opening up can actually uh, aggravate hostilities. Uh, Ambassador, I'd like to shift focus now to the recent uh, referendum that was held in Turkey. On Sunday, we saw President Erdogan secure a massive reform package through this referendum. And how do you see the role of Turkey changing as a result of this vote? Um, I think that, at least in the beginning, uh, it, Turkey will remain focused on Syria. <coughs> but in, on the Syrian question, it in, interacts sharply with Western uh, forces, with the U.S., with the European Union. It has uh, moved closer to Russia on Turkey, although they are at odds over the role of Assad. Um, so around with, with Syria as the locus, its relationship with U.S. Uh, is unlikely to improve, even though um, it has been reported that Trump telephoned 
to congratulate uh, Erdogan, despite the fact that his own State Department issued a uh, quite differently worded uh, comment on the election, including talking about the rights of people and the need for openness and the media, uh, just like the European countries did. So the, the relations with the U.S. are unlikely to improve because they are at odds over the role of the Syrian Kurdish fighters, the YPG, in, uh, in Syria, especially as they approach Raqqa, which is the capital, proclaimed capital of ISIS. And then there are the question of Turkey's demand that the U.S. Uh, uh, send back uh, Fatehullah Gulen, whom Turkey accuses of having planned and conducted the coup last year, which was suppressed by the Erdogan government, but with a lot of public support. <coughs> and there is now a new uh, element of the case against uh, Reza Zarab, who is a Turkish banker and is accused of having contravened sanctions uh, regarding uh, the pass-through of funds to Iran. So there are all these elements which will keep that relationship uh, tense. Similarly, there are uh, reasons for the relationship with the European Union to grow worse, including the hostility against Germany and Netherlands for not allowing Erdogan's uh, uh, ministers to go and campaign to the uh, Turks with dual citizen who live in citizenship who live in those countries. Um, it would appear that uh, the possibility of joining the European Union for Turkey uh, is more or less gone because he has already begun the process for reinstating the death penalty. Uh, and of course, uh, at this moment, Erdogan has the leverage against the European Union on uh, opening up the speakout of uh, refugees, Syrian refugees, fleeing to the European Union through uh, Greece. So all of these are difficult issues, and uh, it will have to be seen how uh, Erdogan balances them against his need for the European uh, market, and there it, the economic relationship is a vibrant uh, relationship. Meanwhile, on the other side, of course, it is possible that he will draw even closer to Russia, despite there's different opinions on the role of Assad. Um, Turkey has already repaired its relationship with uh, Israel. But there are two uh, elements which are quite uh, important. One is that uh, uh, Erdogan has been expressing some nostalgia about the Ottoman Empire and talking about how that gives Turkey the responsibility to intervene uh, in uh, difficulties in the region. The second important question will be that if Turkey's relationship with the uh, European Union and the United States uh, continue to deteriorate and clashes over uh, Syria become a real possibility, then there will be questions about its membership of NATO where it is the second largest uh, troop uh, contributing uh, country and is believed to secure uh, Europe's uh, southern uh, and eastern uh, periphery. Ambassador Deo, even if all of the various players in the region, be it the United States, Russia, Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, 
and the multitude of other countries that have a vested interest in this West Asian region, even if they were able to remove the Islamic State from the area, it seems that the actions may create yet another conflict in this region, that being the conflict of the Kurds and the pursuit for Kurdistan. How can West Asia break out of this repetitive cycle of conflict and crisis? You know, this is really a complex uh, issue. Uh, Kurdistan has been a possibility since uh, the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, There are Kurdish minorities in Iraq who are now more or less uh, an autonomous uh, uh, unit, the Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, The Syrian Kurds are all but a reality, a a autonomous uh, group with U.S. support, at least partly because they contribute uh, to the fight against ISIS in the region. Um, Iran also has a small uh, Kurdish uh, minority, about a million people, but they are in some ways too poor and have not been politically active. So they are not as yet a player in the emergence of these independent autonomous units. But Turkey is the real complexity because here a very large, something like almost 10% of its population is uh, is Kurdish. Uh, all the way till, uh, until 10 years ago, uh, they were not even allowed to speak, uh, use the Kurdish language, have Kurdish radio, have Kurdish, uh, you know, education in, uh, in uh, the Kurdish language. And actually, Erdogan began a process of uh, relaxing these kinds of restrictions. He also began uh, negotiations with uh, the PKK-led Ocalan, uh, who was captured in uh, Italy and uh, sent back uh, to Turkey. Uh, the PKK has been declared a terrorist organization by all the Western countries. And so Erdogan had some support here. But you find now even more complex situation where the leadership of the Kurdish party, uh, which actually won 59 seats in the parliament in the last election, most of them have been jailed. Uh, In the referendum, a substantial number of Kurds voted yes in favor of the referendum. So it is not that all Kurds in Turkey are united against Erdogan, uh, and it is sure that Turkey will not allow an autonomous Kurdish region to emerge, uh, which, uh, uh, and depending on the tactics and how fierce the suppression becomes, that will also create a further dilemma for uh, the, uh, Turkey's European Union, and especially its NATO allies, because Turkey is a very important takeoff point, even for American aircraft, which are bombing uh, ISIS sites in uh, in uh, Syria. Uh, they use the Inchirlik uh, NATO base. So, but I would hazard that uh, the situation for the Kurdish uh, people in Turkey will become worse. But uh, in uh, Iraq and Syria. Uh, their autonomous units will become stronger. So it is difficult to say how this can be mitigated by any outsiders. Uh, And in turn, the dynamic within these four countries, which have Kurdish populations, will become more and more complex.
thank you ambassador that's all the time that we have for today next week on the new world order we'll be taking a close look at east asia if you enjoyed this podcast please like subscribe and rate us on itunes and soundcloud have a question for the podcast tweet it to us at gatewayhouse.ind you've been listening to the new world order a podcast series by gatewayhouse which observes defines and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world